Okay, I'm pulling out of the parking lot. You all know what that means. Well, A, it means that I dropped my daughter off at spring break camp. But B, it means it's time for drive to work. Okay, so today I'm going to start talking about the design of WorldWake. So last time I talked design in my podcast, I talked about Zendikar and a lot of the, I did a lot of cards and stories. Today I'm continuing the Zendikar block by talking about WorldWake. Okay, so to start with, um, I've, my previous Who's Who uh, podcast, I explained that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on people anymore. That's going to be for the Who's Who's podcast. But I do want to talk about who, who designed the set. So the set was led by Ken Nagel, and on the team was Kelly Diggs, who used to work on, who used to be editor-in-chief of the website, and then was an editor, and currently, beside being an editor, also does some creative stuff. Um, Mark Globus, known from the first great designer search, is the producer of Magic uh, and a designer. Matt Place was a developer, was a develop, uh, development representative for the set, and myself. Um, so Ken Nagel, uh, this was his first lead, uh, first time being a lead designer. So what happened was Ken came in second in the first great designer search, um, losing out to Alexis Jansen, although they both did well enough that they each got an internship, and Ken managed to turn his internship into a full-time job. Uh, Ken then went on to be on a whole bunch of different teams. Finally, we decided it was time for his own team. Uh, and our policy is basically, uh, metaphorically, we throw you in the pool. Uh, we got a lifeguard standing by, which would have been me on the team, uh, and see what you can do. Uh, Ken did a great job. So the idea of the second set, to explain real clearly, is the, uh, this was a small winter second set. Usually uh, a, a set like that is there to be a continuation of a large set and do more. You want a few twists, you want a few new things, but a lot of what the small set is doing is being a continuation of a large set. So most of the themes in Worldwake were mostly evolution of stuff that Zendikar had done. There's a few exceptions, and I'll get to those. Okay, so Zendikar was the land set. It obviously had a lot of land uh, things, so landfall being the biggest thing. Um, the biggest difference between landfall in um, Zendikar and landfall in Worldwake was in Zendikar it was only on creatures. So Worldwake introduced it to spells. Uh, and the way the spells worked was if you cast a spell and you'd already played a land, then the, the effect got bigger. Uh, you drew two cards. Oh, no, you drew three cards, that, that kind of thing. Um, we also had more landfall effects that um, were a little more static in nature. Uh, mostly the way they worked in Zendikar is they created a spell-like effect or they enhanced the creature it was on until end of turn. Um, and there are a few cards in uh, World Wake that created static effects that didn't affect themselves but affected the board that would happen to the end of turn. Uh, there also was... Um, I'll talk about this card, but there, there also was a card in which you paid mana when you, you know, landfall, and then you paid mana to get the effect. Um, so there were little, little tweaks on landfall. Um, kicker, the kicker was in Zendikar because um, one of the things the land set did is made you play a lot of land, and so you got a lot of land in play, and we're like, oh, well, we should give you something to do with all that extra mana. Kicker works really well. In fact, the evolution of multi-kicker, uh, something new for Zendikar, I'm sorry, new for Worldwake, was kicker, but you could pay the cost as many times as you wanted. Um, we actually had designed multi-kicker for Zendikar um, because the same thing, we wanted to let you use your mana as efficiently as possible. So, like, what's even better than kicker? Multi-kicker. Um, but uh, when we were trying to give a definition of Worldwake, we realized that, th that there was a lot going on in Zendikar, so we held it back. 
Um, that's very, very common for us to do, which is the first set will design something and then realize they don't need it and they will hold it for the second set. Um, a lot of what goes on in, in design, this is part of block design, but is figuring out what you need and using what you need and then saving what you don't need for future sets. Um, early in Magic, we kind of each set would just kind of do as much as they could, and we weren't as good about saving things for later sets. We, we did some, but we've gotten better over the years of saying, oh, we're designing all these sets, not just this set, and that we're, prior to, we're, we're prioritizing the block being the best that we can be rather than each set being the best that we can be, that we have to... We don't want the first set to be awesome, the second, third set to go, eh, you know, because we didn't save them things for them. Next, traps. Um, the big evolution of traps, there was one evolution, is these traps were, they uh, worked against specific colors. So these traps were, um, it, would, it would call out that they specifically would work well against one color. And so they were sort of color-themed traps. Um, and that was the major twist. Quests, uh, I mean, we did new quests. I'm not sure we evolved quests all that much, but there were new quests and new things you could do, and um, we definitely had a bunch more quests where you worked your way up there, and then once you were done, it stayed and had a, a static ability. Um, we, we played around with that a little more. Um, allies, allies were still here. Um, the, so one of the things about allies is when we design... A, what I call linear mechanic, which is we're going to make something new, a, a, a new deck that's really the crux of the deck is showing up in this block. Um, one of the things that development has to deal with is if we put... An, how many cards do you put in the first set? Like, do you put enough that the, the deck is viable and tournament-worthy? Because if you do that, then you have trouble putting too many more powerful cards in the later sets. And so there's a balance between wanting to have enough cards to sort of make the deck but not so many cards that you don't have room to make more good cards. Uh, and definitely on Zendikar, or Zendikar block, uh, development made the call to make the ally deck kind of come into its own in the second block. So it was there in the first block, and it mattered in limited and for casual constructed, but it didn't really become a, a tournament viable thing. And even then, it was fringe until the second set. Um, and the second set did all more of what we did in the first set. If you remember my talk... Uh, the, the wizards and the clerics and the fighters, all those were continued. There's a little bit more uh, what I would call just cards that didn't follow that pattern, but just were things that liked having allies around, uh, what I call countenies. They're just like, hey, I'm better the more allies there are. I'll talk about some of those in the card by cards. Um, next, vampires. So the vampires were, uh, Zendikar was the first time the vampires were a characteristic race which means they were the small, plentiful, at common race for black. Um, we continued that. There was a, there was a bunch of vampire um, tribal that went on. Probably allies and vampires were the two main uh, things that had a lot of tribal. A little tiny bit of core. but um, And vampires, um, we didn't really do too much more other than we played up a little bit more of stuff for your vampire deck. Uh, the bloodied mechanic, which said you got better if your opponent had 10 or less life. We carried that over. There's a little bit of bloodied in the set. Um, but the vampires really were just giving you more vampires so you can make your vampire deck, kind of like allies as well, just giving you more for that deck. It didn't, didn't evolve the deck too much. I mean, there, there was a few lordish creatures that helped you. Um, next is the core. So the core, as I explained uh, during my Zendikar, uh, the core originally were from Tempest, uh, and they, were, they had been taken to, to Wrath from somewhere else. And we finally learned when we get to Zendikar, this is where they were from. They were for, from Zendikar. Uh, they have an equipment, I want to say affinity, I don't mean the actual affinity mechanic, but uh, 
the English word of affinity. They, they work well with equipment, and we continued that theme in Zendikar um, and in, in Worldwig. I admit, we continued in Worldwig from Zendikar. Uh, the one big new thing that we actually really didn't do in um, Zendikar, we saved for Worldwig, was making land sort of come alive. And that, so one of the themes, for those that may not know their Zendikar story, um, Zendikar was a plane that was wild, and planeswalkers used to go there because there was lots of treasures hidden away. Um, but there was something wrong. And, and as you, the story went along, you realized that the land was kind of, the reason it was so wild was a re, it was reacting to something. Uh, and what it was reacting to, for those that know the third set, uh, trapped inside were the Eldrazi. And so the Zendikar did not like having the Eldrazi trapped inside them. It wasn't doing nice things. And um, so one of the things that this set was trying to show is the world was getting wilder. So we liked the idea of the animated um, land thing as a theme in this set. Um, and there were a couple ways we showed it off. Um, the biggest way we showed it off, the highest profile way, was there a cycle of rare, uh, what people call man lands, although I'm not sure that, I don't know, nowadays it's people lands or... I'm not sure the, uh, the the current term for them, but uh, creature lands are lands that they come into play as lands, and then you can spend mana to animate them into creatures for, for the turn. Um, these This first cycle were allied dual lands, came in play tapped, and then you could animate them. Now, uh, the fun, interesting thing about this was we were like, okay, these are good. We were very proud of these. We are like, this is going to be exciting. People will love these. And it came out, and it was sort of like, chirp, 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 chirp. Like, people didn't quite get right away how good these were. Um, and, and here's the best way to think of it, which is, when we give you come and play tap dual lands, we're allowed to give you a little bit of extra, a little tiny bit of extra. You know, we, you, you can get gate status, or you can gain a life. Turning into a creature every turn, you know, for no loss of card advantage of any kind, way more than a little bit. That's a lot. And as you see, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit as we go through card by card, but um, they, were, they were quite good. Also, we had a common cycle we called the Zendikons. They were auras that went on lands, and uh, they chanted lands, and they, they animated them into creatures. And then, if that creature ever died, you would get back the aura. So the idea was, I would turn my forest into a creature. Well, if the forest ever died, I would get the enchantment back, and I could turn a different forest into a creature. So the idea is, you could kill any one forest, but I could keep making more forest animated. And so, uh, it helped make it... It was, it was pretty good about keeping up the threat. Um, there were a few other individual cards, but pretty much those are the major themes uh, of playing up the, the creature lands. Okay, so there were seven cycles in this set. I've talked about a few of them, but I'll run through. So the allied beneficiaries were creatures that said if a particular other land was in play, it got a bonus. Um, if you remember from Alpha, uh, Sedge Troll uh, cared about if you had a swamp in play. And then we did Curdape that cared about if he had a forest in play. Uh, these cards were kind of like that. Those were probably the inspirations for it. Um, so we had the, L the enemy color activated traps, and so those were the traps that worked specifically against one of the enemy colors, you know, that it wasn't just a trap, it was a trap against a specific color. Uh, we had the common landfall instance. I talked about this, that there was instance that got stronger if you had played a land this turn. Uh, common multi-kicker creatures. Um, I think the common ones all got plus one, plus one counters if you kicked them. So the idea essentially was they were variable creatures, how big they could be. Um, we also did some ones that were had an ETB effects. 
I think those are at higher rarities. Um, next, we had common spell lands. That was a cycle that we had done in Zendikar, and we did continued here. The idea was they were a cycle of lands, one, one for each color. Came into play, tap, tap for the, the color, and then they, when they came into play, they hadn't entered the battlefield effect. There was a small, flavorful effect that matched the color. Um, although something that obviously any color could do because anybody could play them. Next, we had the rare um, man lands. Uh, people call it the tap lands. And um, finally, we have the Zendikon cycle that I talked about where you animate the land. Okay, so this was a normal size set, by the way, normal size small set uh, at the time, which was 145 cards, 60 common, 40 uncommon, 35 rare, 10 mythic. Uh, the expansion symbol was a hedron opening up. The hint at the things to come. Uh, and the lead developer, by the way, for the set was Mike Turian. I'll, I'll talk about Mike a little bit when I get to the card-by-card card stories. Okay, so let's talk individual cards. Okay, we'll start with A, Abyssal Persecutor. So Abyssal Persecutor was a two-black-black 6-6 six, six demon. We do love our 6-6 six, six demons. Uh, with flying and trample, and it had the simple ability that you can't win and your opponent can't lose while he's in play. So if you remember Platinum Angel from Mirrodin, which was a 4-4 flying creature that said, you can't lose and your opponent can't win and this is in play, we've turned that on its head. Now, we were a little bit nervous because usually you would think having a card that says you can't win, that's a pretty big downside. Um, but players really, really liked this. This was very popular. Um, and, I mean, four mana for 6-6 six, six flying trample is not too bad. Um, it does require you to figure out how to get rid of it before the game ends, but black sacrifices creatures. It's not a... There's ways to work around it. And it does what we like with black, which is black offers you power at a cost, and that's very, very black. Next, Amulet of Vigor. It's an artifact that costs one, and it says whenever a permanent you control enters the battlefield, untap it. So this card originally said, um, whenever a permanent you control would enter the battlefield tapped, instead, it enters the battlefield untapped. Uh, and the goal of this was, there were a lot of lands in Zendikar block, um, we don't want lands to be better than basic lands, and so a lot of the time, to sort of offset it, we have them enter the battlefield tapped. What we call ETBT. ETBT! Um, and we, I was trying to basically say, things that enter, enter the battlefield tapped don't. That, that was the original design of this card when I made it. Um, it turned out that the rules didn't like that. Doing it as a replacement effect caused some problems. So what we ended up doing is just, uh, whenever something you, whenever permanent you, you played into the battlefield, it just untapped it. And for all intents, sorry, for all intents and purposes, it untapped things that came and played tapped, since untapped things were already untapped. Anawan the Ruin Sage. Three black black, legendary creature, four three. Uh, he's a vampire. And uh, during your upkeep, each player sacrifices a non-vampire creature. Um, so this is a tech we, we, I think we first did with demons where you have something that sacrifices things, but to keep it from sacrificing itself, you say it sacrifices a non, the creature type it is. And the reason we do this is, it allows us to do an interesting uh, form of a, a, a tribal card. Um, so when you think of lords in general, you tend to think of, oh, you know, let's say a vampire lord. I'm a vampire, and I grant all vampires some ability. Maybe I give them plus one, plus one. Maybe I give them counters when they do damage. I do something. I, I give them some bonus that says, oh, with me in play, vampires are better. So this is a different way to do a, a lord-type card. I mean, it's not technically a lord because it's not granting things. Um, but it is a build-around-me tribal card. And the reason is, it says there's a negative in which vampires avoid the negative. So, for example, if I can Anawan out and a bunch of vampires out, 
Well, if all I have are vampires, I don't have to sacrifice anything. Where you do have to sacrifice things. Um, and so this card definitely says, oh, well, I'm better if played with more vampires. And so it encourages vampires. Um, and one of the things we did with vampires, I explained this uh, a moment ago, is it's not that we really made anything too new, but we made a lot of different cards that could encourage you to build a vampire deck. And so we were trying to definitely make a mono-black vampire deck a viable thing. Next, Arbor Elf. So Arbor Elf is a, an elf for one green mana, elf druid, 1-1, one, one, uh, and you can tap to untap a forest. Um, the, uh, this is an interesting card, which is a good example of how you can make a card that in one format does one thing and another format does another thing. So this card in a limited format pretty much produces green. You know, you play a forest, you can untap a forest. For all intents and purposes, it's, it's, it's like a land or elf. But if you put this in a format with, uh, in a larger format that has lands that have uh, land types, especially dual lands that have land types, this allows you to get access to other colors. So it, in a... In one format, it's basically a or Elf, but in another format, it's like a Bird of Paradise, although it's a 1-1 Bird of Paradise that, that doesn't fly. Um, but, but anyway, it, 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 one of the things that's fun in design is making something where, being conscious of formats and saying, oh, I see, when one format it'll do this, but in a different format it'll do that, and that, that's kind of fun to do. Next, Avenger of Zendikar. So it's five green and green for five-five elemental. It has two abilities. When it enters the battlefield, you put a 0-1 plant token into play for each land you have. And then it has a landfall ability, which is put a plus-one, plus-one counter on each plant. So this card does a whole bunch of things. I'm, um, some cards uh, are, are very Varthosian in that they are just dripping with flavor. And some cards are very Melvovian, Melvian? <laughs> uh, on the Melvin side, uh, saying that. So Vorthos really cares about flavor and wants cards that just drip flavor. Melvin's one cards that just design-wise are cleverly designed. And this card is very cleverly designed. And let me, let me walk through what's going on. So it has two abilities. Both abilities care about lands. One of them counts lands to make tokens. The other cares about lands coming into play. And so what it does is it takes two abilities that kind of on the, might seem at first disparate, but they're not. They're very connected to each other. And they make interesting decisions on, you know... Now, obviously, this thing's expensive enough that you're going to have some land when you get it out. But the idea is, once I get to seven land, do I want to play this and hold some land in my hand? You know, do, do I want to sort of play it and then play some land to beef up my creatures? Because the zero ones, they're not nearly exciting. Um, this card also has a cute sideways of being a plant enabler, although most plants can't attack. So uh, this clearly is designed to work with its own card. But anyway, and this is just a card as, as a Melvin. Um, my Melvin side. I have a Vorthos. I have a Vorthos side too. But my Melvin side really appreciates this card. Just a lot of things clicking together in a way that plays well, that just thematically holds tight. Um, and, and there's some flavor here. And I'm not saying that Vorthos have to hate this card. It, it's an elemental that makes nature and loves nature and grows. And you know, so that's kind of cool too. Okay, next, Bestial Menace. So Bestial Menace is a sorcery for three green and green. It makes a one-one snake, a two-two wolf, and a three-three elephant. So the funny story about this card is um, we made a card called Cone of Flame many, many years ago. Cone of Flame did one damage to one target, two damage to a second target, three damage to a third target. Very popular. So right after it, I said, okay, I'm going to follow up. I'm going to make Cone of Creature. And Cone of Creature made a 1-1, a 2-2, and a 3-3. At the time we didn't do it, 
We don't tend to make cards that make multiple token types in the same card. That's something we do very infrequently. And so I tried to get it made. People were like, eh, maybe we shouldn't make this. So I ended up writing an article in The Duelist where I talked about this, that I, I tried to make the card, but it had too many counter types, and, eh, well, we didn't make it. And, and, and the article, I'm like, someday. So what happened was, I liked this card, so I kept trying to put it in sets, and it never got made. Um, so flash forward, and I'm writing the card-by-card story for Worldwake. And I see Beastial Menace. I go, oh, Beastial Menace. And so I write the story. I go, oh, well, so what, I explained that you know, I'd made this card many years ago, and I tried to get the set many times. I go, I guess Ken must have thought it was time and put it in the set. And, you know, Ken felt like, oh, maybe this was the right place to have it. Um, and so Ken put it in the set. And I said, it's funny, I, you know, I, I've been trying to get this card in forever, and the, the set finally gets put in. I didn't even put it in the set. So I turn my article in, and I get a note. I get a call from, from my editor, Kelly Diggs, who was also on the design team, if you remember. Kelly says, uh, Mark, I need to correct your article. You in your article said that, um, that uh, Ken put one of your designs in the set. I go, yeah, that's what I assumed happened. He goes, no, no, no. I made Bestial Menace. So what had happened was, Kelly had no idea I'd made this card. Kelly had never read the article where I talked about making this card. He, he didn't know. He just made a card all on his own that he thought was a cool card. So this is what we call parallel design, where it is very possible for two people to make the same card without realizing the other one has made it. Um, in this case, we did it many years apart. Sometimes it happens within the exact same design. Um, in Hollywood, there's a phenomenon that goes on where... In Hollywood, there's this phenomenon that goes on where there's a movie that no one's ever made, and then all of a sudden, within like a three-month period, two movies come out, you know. It's a movie, like, there hasn't been a movie about volcanoes in forever, and then two movies about volcanoes, two movies about Christopher Columbus, two movies about an asteroid hitting the Earth. You know, it's just like, two movies about ants. Whatever it is, it's like, all of a sudden, you know, there there was no movies about it, and then in a short period of time, there's two movies. Um... This happens a lot in design, too, where, you know, one of us will make a card, and the other one makes a card, and then it's almost the same card. Now, sometimes it's obvious because we're, we're mining the same space. It's like, oh, well, we both do the obvious thing. I'm not even talking about that. The ones that are weirder is when it tangentially fits the set, but, like, you just both come up with really weird things. And like, how did both of us come up with this card at the same time? But it happens a lot. Uh, and in here it happened. Um, so anyway, if you enjoy Beer So Menace... Uh, thank Kelly Diggs. He's the one that actually got in the set. Um, but it's funny because a lot of people had read my article. So Kelly was constantly like, no, 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 I made this card. So uh, props to Kelly. I'm, I'm, I'm glad he got it in because it, it's a cool card. Bajookabog. So this is part of the spell land cycle. Um, so the way the um, cycle works is it comes to play tapped. This particular one taps for a black. And then when it enters the battlefield, exile all cards in target player's graveyard. So, for those who don't know, I am a big fan of the graveyard. I made uh, Odyssey. I made Innistrad. I made Dark Ascension. Uh, I, in fact, in fact, if there was a format in which you could only build, like your deck, you had to pick one designer, and then all the cards in your deck had to be designed by that one designer, I believe what has a very, very good chance of winning that tournament is my graveyard deck, the Rosewater graveyard deck. Uh... I, I made the Dredge Mechanic, uh, Bridge from Below, Narc Amoeba, uh, name it. Uh, if, if it. If it's a powerful card that involves a graveyard, I made well, well over probably half in existence. Uh, and and I'm probably being 
being a little generous, I probably made more than that. I made a lot of the tournaments. I, I love the graveyard. So, anyway, it is, this one hurt me. I, I hate when we make cards that get rid of the entire graveyard. I'm like, really? That's a common effect? That's a simple effect? But turns out it only costs one mana, which is what we were doing for these effects. Uh, I tried to find something else for this, although, to be fair, I was leading this. Ken was. I tried to convince Ken to change this, but we just couldn't find another ability. Um, it's interesting that Innistrad came up after this. I don't really think we were trying to plant answers for Innistrad ahead of time. Normally, we plant answers within the set, not ahead of time. But uh, but anyway, uh, I, th- this was a spell cycle that, that made me the least happy, although I, I, it got played. Okay, Calcite Snapper. So, trivia question. What was the design name for Calcite Snapper? And the answer is Convertible Turtle. So, this was the card that I was on Twitter one day... And I made some, like, comment. I, I, when I'm doing design, I can't say much because I can't give away designs. And so I, I had an innocuous tweet, like, today I designed Convertible Turtle. And people were like, what's Convertible Turtle? I'm like, I can't tell you. They're like, oh, you got to tell us what Convertible Turtle does. I'm like, well, it's in the set. I can't tell you. And they're like, okay, the day Convertible Turtle comes out, you must tell us what Convertible Turtle does. And they were guessing and... Now, it used Landfall, so they didn't know the mechanics. There's no way they were going to guess it. So, oh, by the way, Convertible Turtle, uh, Calcite Snapper, I'm going to tell you what it does. It's one blue-blue for a 1-4 turtle. Um, it has Shroud, and with Landfall, you swap its power and toughness. So, when I originally made the card, it had everything there, except it wasn't Shroud. Um, and the cost might have been different. Um, so, mine was basically, it just when you played Landfall, it swapped from a 1-4 to a 4-1. So the problem with swapping power and toughness is that it gets confusing what happens when other things affect power toughness. I will give my example. Imagine this creature, you put a fire-breathing ore on it. Okay, so if I fire-breathe my creature, and instead of a 1-4, I make it a 2-4. Okay, then I, I use landfall. Okay, it was a 2-4, now it becomes a 4-2. Now I use the fire-breathing again. Okay, now is it a 5-2, or is it a 4-3? A where, where does that go, you know? And it, it is confusing when you have further power toughness affecting things. And so the answer, just to make this easier, was to put Shroud on it. Now, for those that might not know Shroud, um, before Hexproof, Hexproof says nobody can target... I'm sorry, Hexproof says um, nobody else can target my stuff. Shroud says nobody can target my stuff, including me. And so by putting Shroud on this creature, we way, way, way lessened the ability for you to have power toughness affecting things after you've used this ability. Not impossible, there are a few, but um, none in the set, so none for limited, and it just in general, it's a hard thing to do. Um, so uh, the reason this got pushed back was we were trying to figure out how to solve it, and it, it wasn't until World Wake that we, just, we figured out the Shroud technology, so that's why it ended up being World Wake. Well, and we might have, when I say lost out to numbers, is we had a bunch of landfall cards, and so we got pushed out on, we had too many landfall cards, and so World Wake took it. But anyway, World Wake kindly made Convertible Turtle, and uh, when it came out, I, in fact, I, I uh, previewed this card on my, on, I believe, on Twitter. Um, this was my preview card. So one of the things I try to do in my, so I, I usually get a social media preview card. Uh, and the things I try to do is I like to preview some, uh, more goofy stuff. Um, usually a lot of the tournament level stuff is being in articles and things. And so I like uh, showing off stuff that's a little more on the goofy side. Um, and Convertible Turtle being kind of Twitter-born in some ways. Uh, it, it was obvious that had to be my Twitter preview. Okay, next. Celestial Colonnade. Okay, so this is one of the, the tap land, the creature lands at rare. Um, so it enters the battlefield tapped. It taps for white or blue. 
And then for three white blue, so for five mana, it turns into a four four flying creature with vigilance. Okay, so for five mana, it turns into a Sarah Angel. Okay, remember what I said before. When we make tap lands, dual tap lands, we have a little bit of space. Remember? Gate, gain a life. Or Sarah Angel. You get to make a Sarah Angel. So anyway, just a sign of how powerful these things were. And that, that, that was a lot. You were getting a lot. The, the ability to, uh, for example, not have to have a win condition on your land uh, is pretty, pretty potent. It's a little bit better than I'm a gate. So, um, and anyway, these eventually became popular. It took a little while. Um, it is funny. One of the things that happens in sets is we think, well, development will figure out what they consider the good cards to be from future future testing. And they don't completely know. One of the tenets of development is if they knew everything, then you guys would figure it out in two seconds because there's millions of people playing constantly. So we make environments complex enough that we have some idea. And usually development knows which cards are the better cards. They don't necessarily know what the decks are. So... You know, you could be a good card and not have a deck that makes sense, and so maybe you don't end up getting played in tournaments. But they know what the good cards are, and they knew that these lands were good. And so what happens is, when we put them out, we want the people to see what we consider the good cards to be. But sometimes, either the it's just kind of hidden how good the card is so the players don't see it right off the bat, or the deck that would need to be there just isn't there, or people haven't found it yet. So it just, people don't... People might go, oh, this seems powerful in the right context. Is that context there? And so a lot of times, um, one of the things about watching previews is, will people get excited by stuff? Um, And sometimes you know cards are really good, and players either take a time to figure that out, or the context that makes them real good isn't as apparent, you know, or isn't right there. Because usually people look at existing decks to see how the cards go in existing decks. And then eventually, players will figure out new things and new decks to make with them. But unless the deck is super linear, it takes a little bit of time to figure that out. Yeah, 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 you get an ally deck. Ally says put all the allies in a deck. So that gets figured out quickly. Okay, I am at Wizards. And that, I made it all the way to C. In fact, I didn't even finish the Cs. I have more Cs to talk about. So obviously, I have some more podcasts to do. Um, but uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying hearing all about World Wake. Um, like I said, it was Ken's first design. I, I think Ken did a good job. And I will continue in future podcasts to talk a little bit more about the card-by-card designs. Uh, but, as I pulled into my parking space, or not my parking space, a parking space, um, I want to say that as much as I love talking about magic design and magic history and world wake history, even more, I like making magic. So i got to go make some more magic. I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks for joining me.